Hello, everybody, and welcome to part two of Barrett Klein, one of my favorite guests. I love insects, by the way, and one of my favorite things to learn about, but also just such a fantastic guest. So much fun. Such a great conversation. Two great conversations. So if you didn't listen to last week's episode, maybe I'd kind of recommend going back, listening to that one first rather than this one. You don't necessarily have to, but I'd recommend doing that. And yeah, I apologize for being late. This was supposed to this was supposed to be a bonus episode last week. I got sick. I've been in a little bit of a funk lately anyway. Maybe I'll talk about it later. Maybe I won't. But I got a, a cold. It was just annoying and it was just like the straw that broke the camel's back and I just collapsed. I just couldn't deal with anything podcast related. I, I've just been crazy busy on the stand-up science tour and falling behind on some of the behind-the-scenes administrative things of booking shows and stuff like that that I've just been playing catch up on and have been overwhelmed and I've been having a hard time getting back into work mode ever since I spent a month in Europe and fell out of all the good habits that I built had way too much fun and was having trouble getting back into reality and and uh, everything else so that's why there was part of the reason why there was some of a delay here but I'm thinking instead next week maybe I'll do a, a a bonus episode instead and then since we'll have missed september's bonus episodes maybe you'll get a couple bonus episodes for october to make up for it feeling good i just uh just started working out again i'd fallen out of exercise and then everything else in my life seems to fall apart i think i'm just at the age now where i can't get away with not exercising at least to do the things that I'm trying to do, which are time-consuming and ambitious and uh, just require me operating at a higher level. And so feels good to get back into it and hopefully, uh, hopefully getting some good habits built. We will see. But thank you guys for tuning in. Enjoy some Insect Talk. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, we have episode number two with Associate Professor of Animal Behavior and Entomology at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse, my home turf. Barrett Klein is joining me today. Thank you. Welcome back, Barrett. There's been uh, listeners now, or often many of them are maybe hearing this episode back to back, but in our time, there has been a, a large chasm of time and in my case, life events that have happened since you and I uh, talked, but we had such a terrific conversation last time that I begged and I pleaded (laughs) with you to come back on the show. And I leapt at the chance. (laughs) Um, Talk about life events happening in the interim. I've had two honeybee swarms, a requeening event. My Madagascar hissing cockroaches gave birth. And that's only the beginning. 
I mean, I walk in today and you got these hive. First off, why don't more people have their hives in glass so they can check out the goings-ons of, of what's happening? I think most people don't realize that it's feasible, that it's possible. Now, granted, it's much more difficult to maintain. Say, for example, if you want them to survive a winter, it's an artificial situation to have just a sliver of comb sandwiched between two transparent media like glass. Because if you were to open up a natural wild bee colony, say a dark hollow tree, then you'd see these parallel combs hanging from above. Now, the reason why they're parallel forming kind of a ball has many uh, benefits for the bees, and one is thermal. So mm. if it gets cold, you can form this hot ball of bees contracting their wing muscles without flying, and they can rotate out so the cool ones on the outside become warm on the inside, and they switch positions. Now, in just a flat observation hive, you'd have to do something pretty special for them to overwinter effectively. That said, if you're a seasoned beekeeper, if you work with a friend who's a beekeeper, then it's pretty easy to swap what's in an observation hive with what's in a bee yard in your typical what's called Landstroth or other hive, where you can have a series of frames that mimic a natural hive in a hollow tree in a box, in mm. a wooden crate, right, piled on top of each other. So my plan with this eight-frame observation hive versus my wee little more typical two-frame observation you're, hive. You're pathetic. Yeah, my pathetic. I mean, think about it. It's only what five, six thousand bees in there, but I over there, the two-frame, <laughs> you might have fifteen, twenty, maybe more sure. thousand bees. And my plan is to see if I can overwinter them effectively. I hope I can. Oh, and then I can well, watch them all the time. But an observation hive, instead of the black box that is a beekeeper's um, bread and butter, normal situation, is, is I mean, you get some revelations about what's happening in this soap opera of a colony when you watch them day by day. Yeah, you were walking me through some of the... As soon as I arrived, you were just like, quick, get over <laughs> here. And uh, I mean, your, uh, I mean, enthusiasm is obviously your default, but... <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, because because a lot of people, whatever environment they're they're in, they see the same thing, or, uh, you know, day in day out, and they go, "God, these damn bees that I gotta keep," and and you get bitter after a while. But you have <laughs> maintained your curiosity by constantly learning. And yeah. Well, what I tell students who come into my lab who might be interested in learning about behavior and studying honeybees, for mm -hmm. example, is to say, "All right." Studying behavior isn't for everybody. It requires a lot of patience, for example, to look at these individuals. Now, one thing that can help is to grab a bee and put an individual paint mark on her. So if you've got red, yellow, blue, and green, orange, for example, or you put a little number tag, you can, in theory, and I've done this with others before once, mark a whole colony individually of bees, then it gets really interesting because if even if you have a handful of individually paint-marked bees, then you get used to what they're doing over days and weeks' time. And then you can see if the same bee engages in the same behavior. Mm. So just to give a wild, uh, extreme example, 
I was at a bee feeder, a sugar water feeder out in the Adirondack State Forest in New York. And I would wait for bees to fly from their colony, maybe 100 kilometers out to my little feeder. And I was situated by a lake. Well, blue red kept coming. You know, my patriotic blue red would keep flying out. And I'd get used <laughs> to this bee every day and among a bunch of other bees. But this one, you know, I had tabs on and we had walkie talkies. So I'd talk to the person who was at the hive and we'd exchange notes about timing and behavior. Mm. Well, after a couple of weeks of getting used to this bee's behavior, she did something really odd. She landed on the feeder, walked around didn't extend her tongue-like mouth parts into the sugar water solution as she always would, but rather walked around, fidgeted, flew up over the lake and dove, basically dive-bombed into the lake. Now, knowing that bees can face various parasites, internal behavior-modifying parasites, and having read about a bee brain fluke, that needs to continue its life cycle in water. Oh, I wanted to dive after wonderful. that bee, but I would have had to th- scrap that day's experiment. <laughs> so I didn't. But I think she exploded in the water. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, you know, that's an oddball event, but there are oddball events left and right. And for example, Nico Tinbergen, famous behaviorist, shared Nobel Prize with Conrad Lorenz and um, Carl von Frisch. He famously instructed others to have a view of these odd things, not to close your eyes, not to have tunnel vision, but as a scientist, sure, you can start out with a hypothesis. You can try to test that hypothesis, and maybe it's a really exciting idea, but don't do it at the expense of ignoring other nuggets of gold, odd behaviors that could take you in really interesting directions. Mm. So that's what I try to do when I'm doing one experiment. You know, it might fail, but whoa, what's happening over there? Mm. And a good example of that would be when I was in Würzburg, Germany, and I had a little observation hive. I was watching my bees, and one night, a katydid, grasshopper relative, hopped in my observation hive tunnel, and the bees started to attack it. Well, I would have noticed that, and I would have noticed a mosquito another night flying into the hive, but then I probably wouldn't have noticed much else except for increased activity. But I happen to have a thermal camera that looks at infrared imagery uh, beyond humans' capacity to perceive. And I was doing it for a totally different reason, but I zeroed in on that Katie did, and then that mosquito. And what did I see? This thermal defense with these bees just as they overwinter as a hot cluster, contracting their wing muscles without flapping their wings, I saw this mob of bees bake that individual alive and bake the mosquito alive. And I noticed over the ensuing days that these Vespula germanica yellow jacket wasps would come in my observation hive, or whenever I opened a beehive in a bee yard, there'd be tens of thousands of bees. No matter, a yellow jacket would fly in, decapitate a honeybee, mulch it into a bolus of protein to take it back to its pre- back to its brood in its nest, because a wasp is a predator, a honeybee is a, a vegetarian, an herbivore. And here, the yellow jacket would invade my colony, sometimes succeed, but more often than not, again, be mobbed and baked alive, as well as suffocated with an envelope of CO2. So I decided from this happenstance side uh, observation to make that into a standardized study. 
Wow. I want to put a red dot on you and follow it. <laughs> follow you around that would help because then you'd distinguish me from my identical twin brother (laughs) he has no red dot um do you you ever have you ever put a put a a colored dot you put a purple dot or something like that on a bee and the bees respond positively or negatively to it and all of a sudden it's like you throw the purple on there and it's like the nike swoosh and now this is just the (laughs) the coolest be in school? You know, that is an excellent question because it really has merit. Because if you look at other studies involving, for example, birds, birds yeah. yeah, you know it then, mm-hmm. where you might have a tag on the leg. And at least according to one study with one species, it appeared to affect mate selection. Yeah, real hot commodity. Exactly. Yeah. With the arbitrarily colored leg band. Mm-hmm. Uh, with my bees... No, I haven't done a very controlled, standardized test of this marking of in that coolness. way of coolness. <laughs> but I s- suspect, hope that there hasn't been an effect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that'd be trouble. That'd be trouble for beekeep behaviorist beekeepers and bee researchers at large. Yeah. Um, do bees see color? Bees do see color. In hmm. fact. Uh, honeybees, as determined by Carl von Frisch way back in the 1930s, learn very well blues, especially greens, yellows, um, and they distinguish contrast, color, shapes, uh, patterns, all kinds of things visually. They, mm-hmm. they can see polarized light. So compared to honeybees, our vision is quite different. So we see Roy G. Bibb, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, typically. And we have a bias, obviously. Humans think anthropocentrically. So we ignore the infrared and beyond, or the ultraviolet and beyond, for the most part. So who sees in those um, either short or long wavelengths? And there are a lot of organisms, a lot of non-human animals that do. Uh, Some say that the butterfly, some butterflies may have the widest range of color vision from uh, reds into ultraviolet. Honeybees a little bit limited relative to the average butterfly, where at least some tests suggest that they see ultraviolet, which is beyond what we see, into maybe oranges and not really reds. So typically you won't see bees, honeybees, visiting red hummingbird feeders or visiting red flowers. If you see honeybees visiting red flowers, it's probably because they're reflecting patterns in the ultraviolet which we don't detect. Hmm. But you put an ultraviolet camera on one of those flowers, and it's like they have landing strips going down the corollas, down the petals, into the nectar sources of these flowers. Whereas maybe a butterfly, this is a part of mate selection or something. Where it can be. Because of the varied color of the wings, it can be a, have, having a little more distinctive eye than, you know, yeah. who's, who's really got the, the hottest wings in town. Really astute point, because the honeybee is not going for colors for uh, reasons of mate selection. They're all kind of a mottled brownish. Right? Mm. <laughs> Butterflies, full gamut. I mean, you've got basically the... Uh, secondary sexual apparatus in the form of these colorful wings flapping around gaudily. Mm -hmm. They're using it sometimes for camouflage, sometimes for startle response, sometimes for aposematism, warning coloration. I'm toxic in the case of monarch butterflies. Who will forget a yellow, black, white, right? Nobody. Nobody, that's right. With one nasty taste of sequestered milkweed ooze, you don't want another bite of a a monarch, or even a (laughs) viceroy for that part. Now, uh, but as you said, 
sexual selection can play a huge role as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, I'm, I guess I'm a little still stuck on the brain parasite. Not even, it's one of my favorite concepts of we, we just recently had, I don't know in relation to when yours is going to be coming out, if this one will have aired, but, but the kind of classic I, I had a mycologist talking oh, about good. the 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 ants, Cordyceps? the ants getting yeah. infected and Fantastic. going up the trees and wonderful yeah, it's an, do, so bees have some stuff like uh, that going on too? oh yeah i mean every parasite has its own parasite so you you bet now thinking of cordyceps that fungus that can burst out of a head capsule of an ant or basically any part of certain insects they're a delicacy in some parts of the world and that could be a segue into at least one part of what we might discuss, cultural entomology, how insects Ooh. affect humans and have throughout the world and across span of time. Yeah, we're going to definitely get to that. We Great. also need to do uh, sleep. sleep. I still have a couple bee questions because yeah. you, I wasn't expecting to. Bees. I walked in here and you just threw Let's bee stuff at me. Um, well, one, you know, there's... Uh, Things that get in in bees, uh, parasites that that drive bees' behavior. Do you think that bees have somehow maybe infected you, and and you're now this <laughs> obsessed bee person? Wow, I, I would be an easy uh, host. Uh, Let me tell you, I'd be a totally easy host. <laughs> um, so I walk in. So this is uh, this is such a wonderful thing, and, and I'm now realizing it myself when I look around at these hives because of what you pointed out to me. You get to, and this is this is the case for for you know putting a little extra effort into having the glass, the observable yes. hive. Is you're looking in there and you're and you're going, look at this waggle dance. Oh, this, and, and I was actually kind of, um, I I wasn't surprised that you could easily identify a waggle dance, but the ease of, of which you were able to be like, look, this guy found a source, girl. Uh, uh, the, the, sorry, the, this this girl. It's like it's like when you say you guys, and there's girls involved. It's the, the whole patriarchy at but you're work right. infesting my own mind. But um, but but you you look and you go you, you go. Uh, 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 this this lady over here is waggling around to this food source that was that was a completely different direction to this lady who's waggling, and they were they were equal distance. You you had a sense of the direction. You had a sense of the distance. You are a a bee per you're you're officially are you're part B now. You can easily be a honeybee decoder, a waggle dance decoder. And a classic story I love from my friend Tom Seeley's Honeybee Democracy at the tail end he talks about this lobster fisherman who's on this island off the coast of Maine where he occasionally does studies, and this grumpy guy across the island, you know, you're to avoid this part of the island, this grumpy lobster guy. Well, Tom was studying swarming behavior in honeybees, and he could tell very uh, meticulously and uh, correctly where these bees were flying. If they're doing the simple waggle dance, all it is is, say they're waggling at this angle relative to the vertical, transpose that angle, all it means is relative to the sun. What is the site they're advertising? That's the direction. Mm -hmm. And they're waggling one, two, three seconds. That would correlate with the distance. So Tom knew where it was coming from. He looked at his map and he said, "Uh uh-oh, they're going toward the lobster man. So he ended up traveling nervously, sheepishly over 
And the lobster guy ran out of the house saying, bees. And Tom said, I'm here to find bees. And so he was able to save him from his bees coming down his chimney. So it was that exact uh, measurement that he could make when he's decoding the waggle dance uh, on a map to find across the island where to go. So you can decode a honeybee's waggle dance quite easily. Do they also, is is there information within a waggle dance about how um a kind of how exciting the find is like this is we got a we got a pepsi on the basketball court (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah so you can you can see it in a waggle dance if she's going feverishly Mm -hmm. for 50 plus waggle runs you know a circuit where you go and turn around don't waggle when you go backwards that would indicate the opposite direction and then waggling that abdomen and then come back around if they're doing that over and over and over again sharing food and more waggle dance followers are uh, accruing and she does it for so many times well the numbers grow but her excitement is there and so you see motivation levels that translate into you see basically excitement uh, in motivation so, yeah, you've got direction, distance, quality of a food source, a number of factors, and or anything advertised. It could be a new home, a water source, propolis. I imagine your family knows all about this stuff, too. Do you, do you guys, you, are you waggle dancing around? Do you, you have your own kind of forms of communications modeled after bees that, mm-hmm. and insects that you use sometimes? My four-year-old ribbon is a dancer. Now I've got yeah. to hone that dancing into waggle dancing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, <laughs> you know, sometimes they can be tough to wrangle in those kids and they, they look across, uh, across the <laughs> soccer ball field and they see dad twerking and they know, they know it's, it's time for Dairy Queen. <laughs> and Actually, come that would around be a in. really good test for Riven as he gets older. <laughs> like, what am I advertising, Riven? Where in town are we going? <laughs> Will it be this ice cream shop or that ice cream shop? I like that. Yeah. I'm going to do that. Uh, you should. <laughs> uh, you absolutely should. So, a real honeypot of an idea. <laughs> um, I So, let's recap what we kind of talked about um for and when i say let's like you and i recap i'm saying why don't you recap what we talked about last time because you have uh a slot tight memory that is uh impressive and more organized than i I mine i've i've seen your journals i know that your whole headspace is a a much more organized palace than than the uh oh i like how you brought up palace as in memory palace Uh, yeah where the extreme super memory people will build a fictive palace and walk through rooms in order to remember arbitrary facts yeah i'm I'm scavenging through a a, through a junkyard (laughs) Uh, up here trying to i think we talked about sleep junkyards work junkyards work yeah okay sleep recap as far as i recall we started to talk about what sleep is in a behavioral sense in a physiological sense what the gold standard for measuring sleep is and then we went into what a suite of behavioral sleep signs may be for something that would be either difficult or impossible to test physiologically. So say, for example, you want to look at an orca whale, or if you want to look at a honeybee, uh, 
EEGs, electroencephalograms, where you probe the electrical activity of a brain, will be hard to come by. And uh, no one has had success beyond the glimmer, say, for example, of gross changes, wakeful quiescent states with two microelectrodes in a quiescent. Quiescence. Define that oh, word yeah. for L- me. Let me tell you. So you travel back pre-2000, no, about year 2000, and you'll see all kinds of words bandied about that aren't easy to define. Gray, area, blurry, nebulous, vague terms that are trying to steer clear safely from using the loaded term sleep. Mm. So how do you use the boldly the term sleep for fruit flies. If you're going to a meeting of three to 5,000 sleep biologists, probably 90 plus percent of them work with humans, and in a medical sense, you want to convince them potentially that you've got a model system that's more tractable. You can do more stuff with it that's not a human in the form of this fly. But can it really be said to sleep? So very careful tests were done simultaneously in two separate labs on fruit flies that include a bit of behavior, but mostly, um, well, it was a combination of behavior, uh, physiology, hormones, etc. And what they determined was that they did have a sleep-like state. Okay, do you use the word quiescence, rest, profound rest? sleep-like state, at what point is it accepted and fall under the, the term sleep? And more and more, as more evidence came in, sleep biologists accepted this new model system, this new fruit fly sleeper. Hmm. So the language in the literature, as, as say, cautious. the biology changed and as more and more... Um, studies suggested that sleep was really happening here sleep became part of the lexicon i guess i wouldn't have guessed um sleep researchers being such an anxious easily triggered group of uh, don't you dare call it sleep and that and that was keeping them up at night that other people were encroaching in their Get, in their sleep. Get any two humans together. <laughs> yeah. Get a large community of scientists together, whether uh-huh. it be paleontologists or sleep biologists, systematists looking at evolutionary biology, and there will be contradictory evidence. Mm-hmm. There will be debates, and people will feel very strongly. Now, what is one maybe impossible goal of a scientist? Objectivity. Uh, you want to remove as much subjectivity and bias from your interpretation of empirical evidence of data as you can. That can be difficult because we are humans and we'll have inherent biases. So we try to do some things like blind and double double blind studies, c- controls, multiple careful controls. And if you can have your experiment replicated by skeptics, all the better. Mm-hmm. As more independent lines of evidence converge on a single idea or explanation, all the better. Because as a biologist, I cannot prove anything. I can disprove alternative hypotheses. And Karl Popper, a science philosopher, was big on that, right? Uh, the idea that you can, you can basically say something isn't happening, but you can't say with uh, infinite knowledge that something 
is happening for a reason. Mm -hmm. So when I look at something and I say sleep, I am totally open to challenging evidence, mm -hmm. as long as the semantics, the terminology is consistent. Mm -hmm. So the argument of using sleep is probably a really good thing because every once in a while I see the term sleep used really loosely. And why is that a danger? You think, oh, that's trivial, right? So sure, it looks sleep-like. I mean, this fossil dinosaur looks like it's sleeping, right? Or this organism, this flatworm looks like it's sleeping. If you don't do careful tests, that can be dangerous because of what sleep means. If it's really the complex special behavior that seems to come with attributes, then you want to be careful of how you use it. Yeah. So, and a quote that every sleep researcher will refer to is by the sleep researcher Alan Rechtschaffen, if sleep doesn't serve an absolutely vital function, it is the biggest mistake evolution ever made. Right. Now that's a bold statement, and it suggests that this time that we spend in this prone state where we don't seem to be doing something that's explicitly, overtly, obviously fitness increasing, meaning leading to increased reproduction. We're not building a shelter, finding a maid, gathering food. We're, uh, right? There must be something to it. And that's what that quote is hitting at. Hmm. Yeah, I, uh, so because otherwise you're wasting away eight hours a day in, right? in humans' case. Right. Um, and uh, there has to be some sort of benefit to that or some sort of trade-off. Otherwise, why not have someone that can only sleep two hours a day? Now they're off taking advantage of everybody else while, the, while those other suckers are sleeping. Exactly. And with uh, the different mechanisms driving evolution or change in allelic frequencies in a population over time, natural selection being one of those mechanisms, you can be outcompeted. Hmm. Um, yeah, uh, and I, it's so interesting how how biased scientists can be considering that, that you know, the, uh, the big goal of science is to create this objectivity, but then you throw in human nature where there's this need for status or affiliation and you want to get along with certain groups and mm -hmm. stand out and I'm going to be the most objective person. <laughs> <laughs> objectively the most objective scientist and to, so i'm not advocating entirely removing the humanity of science because there are poets of science and there's creative writing within thinking within science that takes a special person a special character but when it biases or taints um your objectives and your interpretation of evidence then it becomes dangerous mm. So you see these uh, biases and agendas in the scientific community. And the hope is, uh, ideally, that with time, with replication, the ideas that best represent facts will rise to the top. Hmm. I So in my experience with sleeping, which I'm a big fan of, hmm. uh, I'm... Uh, it's probably if it's if it's the biggest mistake in evolution. It's also my favorite mistake in, I love in it. evolution. I love it because I've got questions for you. Then you ready? Yeah, okay. yeah. I'd love to know, for example, if you incorporate dream material in your comedy sketches. Um, 
sometimes I don't remember dreams as much as I would hope to, but I have a couple things about dreams that I've incorporated. And then I think more importantly is daydreaming and how, how much, how different is daydreaming from night dreaming? I actually don't think it's as different as the subjective kind of visual feel or or emotional quality that that so it, you know when, when you're sleeping it i would say it's intensified compared to daydreaming is subtler but i think some of the same things are going on in almost all of my material comes from uh, daydreaming and that that's a really good point because if you if you think about daydreams are you thinking about actual sleep because Many people going into stage one sleep, if roused, might deny that they were sleeping at all. Mm -hmm. And stage one, two, then slow wave, deeper sleep, three and four, and then rapid eye movement sleep, REM sleep, which is typically the seat, uh, the stage for more narrative dreaming, um, will go in cycles, these 90 to 110 minute cycles over the span of a night. So you might, for example, in an eight hour sleep invest two hours in REM sleep over time and a lot of that will be the dreaming but you do have hypnagogia which actually I mentioned last time and these non-narrative usually face-filled vision visions as you're falling asleep and then you can have Mm. some aspects of dreaming that are usually very quickly forgotten in these other stages of sleep. So if you're daydreaming, I could imagine material or inspiration coming from that as well. And and I would say it's kind of, in many ways, relatively the same, where if you, if pressed to speculate on what REM sleep might be, I think it's just more of the consciousness whatever that is being inserted into the experience of sleeping even though there might be things like say muscle memory and different things being being worked out through the brain during sleep and then when our uh, when REM sleep hits your consciousness now finds itself in that environment of this neural activity like I've had dreams where I um, figure out a move on a rock climbing wall that, yeah. I, that I've been trying to figure out for yeah. some time, you know. But 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 that's a specific dream about specifically that move that I have to make. Whereas if I'm doing something a little more universal, like say I'm working on my balance and standing on one foot, that might be balance is, is something that is always going to benefit us in, in many domains of our physical activities and has a more global um, uh, use. And so that might be represented as me being like standing on the edge of a cliff or something like that. But it's this very dramatized thing. And much in the same way, I think daydreaming is like I'm sitting there, I'm doing the dishes and everything, and I'm not mm-hmm. aware of the kind of inner world of activity that's going on that's certainly there until I become aware of like, oh, this idea pops into my head. But that idea was already in my head. I just wasn't consciously aware of it. Really astute. And I, I, first off, I love the idea that you can have this muscle memory or say just washing your dishes and you let your mind wander. Mm-hmm. And that can be the most exciting prospects for uh, inspiration or mm-hmm. exploration or creativity. And Watson and Crick independently thought the same, and others have said the same kind of thing. When you divorce yourself from, say, 
uh, a stamina testing bout of anything, but just wander and allow your mind to wander, then you can get some really interesting, maybe novel ideas. And, you know, everybody, I think, uh, faces this situation where, oh, forgot that name. I forgot that fact. And then you let your mind wander and boom, pops back in. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? I would love to know why. You know, how is the brain working? How is the brain processing that? And the idea, as you stated, that you had that spark of a notion, you had that thought beforehand, and then it just beca- works its way in, say, while you're washing mm-hmm. the dishes, is an interesting one. Because uh, if you think about bold claims that you can solve problems during sleep or during dreaming, there's a really interesting, controversial or contentious body of literature and hearsay about that. Mm -hmm. So, on the one hand, you've got Bob Stickold's work that shows really clearly that you've got this psychomotor vigilance task where the eye-hand coordination, you can improve it with training, sure, but you can improve it even more with training plus sleep, Mm -hmm. plus dreaming. And then Bob Stickled's further work with, uh, say, skiing down a slope in a video game. Then you dream about it. You improve, right? They're really clear evidence to suggest that rapid eye movement sleep, and in some cases, slow wave sleep for other things, but rapid eye movement sleep can improve different um, behaviors. Uh, now, on the flip side, when you say, oh yeah, I got that idea during sleep, or during dreaming, during sleep, and I get all my inspiration from dreams, it's tricky because uh, a really great book that I read recently Kevin Ashton's How to Fly a Horse, The Secret History of Creation, Invention, and Discovery. He talks about what he considers a myth, and it has to do with uh, Friedrich August Kekule and the idea that this German chemist figured out the benzene ring molecularly, structurally, from a dream. He dreamed of a snake grabbing its own tail. And and the way Kevin Ashton approaches that is, that's a bunch of bunk. So as he puts he puts it, um, Weisberg points out that the word Kekule used was halbschlaf, or half-sleep, which is often translated as reverie. Kekule was not sleeping. He was daydreaming. Bing, 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 bing. His dream is often described as a vision of a snake biting its tail. But Kekule says he saw atoms twisting in a snake-like motion. And he recounts this 25 years after he had this uh, supposed dream. Mm. So this is one of the more famous tales of being inspired, and this is a Nobel laureate, um, being inspired by dreams. I would not discount that you get novel ideas. Uh, I think it's probably more typical that from random or somewhat random synaptic firing in the brain, you build a pseudo-narrative while you're dreaming, and maybe you pull together ideas that were already extant, already existing in your brain, um, yeah. and, and then interpret it. I mean, I, th- I think often, you know, before before you wake up, your brain starts flooding with cortisol, a stress hormone, to, to awake you, and if you just happen to go into REM sleep at that time and your consciousness mm. happens to become active and now finds itself in the environment of the flooded with uh, with a stress hormone, uh, active amygdala, 
uninhibited by the prefrontal cortex, you might create a story of some horrific nightmare because that is the a metaphor and an exaggerated embodiment of the environment that it finds itself in and i think this uh this is much of what our subconscious is do- i think when you're when the ki- kids play the floor is lava or something I, oh. I think that's a way of heightening upping the ante on on fine-tuning those motor skills and and um uh which is exactly the kind of fine motor skills hunter gatherers would need for jumping around streams and those looks silly to a bunch of adults that work in cubicles nowadays but i i think these are exactly the skills you'd want to be building at that stage and i have so for example when i go rock climbing like to tie this knot you make this loop that's the head and then you wrap it around to tie a noose around and then you poke it in the eye and it creates this really graphic representation because that leaves an impression Mm -hmm. on memory just as the you use your emotions to Mm -hmm. deliver a message and you have a different enthusiasm to different points to highlight different parts of your message and i emotionally respond differently to different parts of your message which are are just like if I was reading a book and highlighting the yeah. certain parts that I wanted to note. I think our emotions are kind of doing the same sort of process. Wow, if we spoke in monotones the whole time <laughs> with no um, emphasis on certain words, then it would be problematic. Unless that's really novel points. to do, and then you might be like... <laughs> for a, a short period. <laughs> uh, you know, Noam Chomsky certainly gets a lot of attention for his very, oh, very different, uh, different kind of... Delivery. So there's a lot of there's a lot of factors going on in there. Well, Noam Chomsky's an exception. You, you, <laughs> you've got such brilliant information packed into one of his talks that you can't help but pay attention. I, I love a good matter of fact form of delivery. I agree. I know we're uh, I know it's a little bit opposite side of the fence than than <laughs> where you find yourself. But, but I, I think there's value in both. Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CHAMPION and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CHAMPION and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. I wanted to read you a couple of quotes about dreams. Yeah, yeah. Let's get into it. Here's one from Newton Kugelmas. Dreams defy time and space, annihilated so that eternity is compressed into a moment, an infinite space traversed in a flash. Love that one. And then, ready for this? Which is how our memory works, because I can go back in time to... My earliest memory, which was when I was like two years old, and then I can really zoom it. I broke my arm, so it was wow. <laughs> it was notable. Um, <laughs> and then uh, and then I, I can imagine what 
life might be like 30 years from now, but mm. probably not very accurately. But we can time travel very easily in our in our mind. So I think when you find yourself in the environment of, of what the subconscious world looks like, it seems like it's a very different idea of how time and space work. Yes. Yeah. And Hypnos, the Greek god of sleep, was the twin brother of death and the son of night, herself the daughter of chaos. <laughs> Gotta love that. <laughs> it's hard to escape mythology because imagine you've got, I mean, 56,000 plus years of history and modern, modern humans and, and that millennia of recorded information about cultural affects related to dreaming. So here in this account from The Biology of Dreaming by Ernest Hartman, he says, the oldest dream book extant, the Egyptian papyrus, 2000 BC, reveals divine revelations. Homer agreed that dreams were messengers of the gods, Socrates, heavenly admonitions to be obeyed, Lucretius, wishes of our hearts, Plotinus, fantasies that crown the objects of our desires. The Greeks had their dreams interpreted at the Temple of Apollo. Physicians were official dream interpreters to the courts, etc. So dreams have played huge roles in the history of humans. Yeah, I think there again, look at the dramatization of, of I, what I think, what I would perceive as much more nuanced um, internal mental worlds that we're hoping to articulate and then impress upon um, people. And I, I go into, I just came from yoga before coming here. Oh. And, you know, some some yoga teachers that that are a little more in the spiritual, mystical side of things, I, I tend to roll my eyes a little bit and not, not respond. And then other, uh, another person's talking, like, about anatomy and, like, the uh, parasympathetic and sympathetic response system. And, and a lot of it's talking about the exact same thing, just mm-hmm. articulated in different ways. And at the end of the day, whether you know that an exhale is activating your parasympathetic response or if the yoga teacher is saying like now exhale and invite in the divine relaxation within you uh, if you're tapping into the same part of the psyche if if um, maybe that's what i'm calling it for the moment uh-huh. um then i mean the uh, the human organism is still acting out in in the same way. It's kind of conveying the the same. It's still having the same outcome on a person. Thinking in terms of relating what's happening in a sleep state versus a so called conscious state, wakeful state. I have a question for you, Shane. Are <laughs> you an oneronaut? I don't know what an oneronaut <laughs> oh, is. <laughs> I just I just learned this term today. So the the study of dreaming is oneurology, and ah. and occasionally the word oneronaut okay. is used for someone who engages in lucid dreaming. I see where you're knowledgeable that you are dreaming. Now I've had lucid dreams, yeah, but not so many. Apparently, about ten percent of human population engages in lucid dreaming. Say one lucid dream a month or so. Anyway, the idea being that you're conscious that you're dreaming, mm-hmm. and in some extreme cases, you can control your dream, mm-hmm. and that can have uh, psychologically really beneficial effects. Mm-hmm. And so, there has been an interesting history of lucid dreaming and the study of lucid dreaming. And as you can imagine. 
it's a gateway. Just as the observation hive is my visual gateway into the behavior of honeybees, we've got this... I'm sorry, I'm remembering one of my lucid dreams, and and I'm like, how how is that beneficial in any way? It's so bizarre and ridiculous. Sharon, please! I mean, it might be a little graphic is the problem. Yeah, I mean, it's just so bizarre. Well, let's let's make sense of what this was trying to tell me. So I went to, um, uh, I was visiting an ex of mine who I'm still friends with, and she was really, <laughs> she was really sad because something was wrong with her boobs. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, they seem fine to me. And then she showed them to me, and they were like hanging on ropes. They were like almost becoming detached wow. from her body. And I'm like. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> it's fine. And 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 I was like trying to cheer her up. And so and so then I'm I'm sure there are uh, dream interpreters uh, who would have a heyday with that uh, one. And then and so then to, to like to like cheer her up, I was like, I still find you attractive. And then we are going and then we are going to uh, become intimate. And then next thing I know, I'm in a grocery store, and and it was it, it was it was partially because the the boobs. I was like, there was a sneaking thing that I remember the feeling of going from like not being lucid to all this to and this happens all the time when I shift into a lucid state of like wait this uh, isn't I I can no longer suspend my disbelief I'm yeah. like boobs don't ever look like this this isn't real and then as soon as I realize that then I find myself in a grocery store uh. Now I know I'm sleep. Now I I know I'm dreaming. I'm in this grocery store and I'm thinking, who are these people? Because they don't look familiar to me. So how am I dreaming them? How do they? Are these just strangers that I passed by that now their representations are in their head, or is this like some some just pure creation of like uh, other people I know morphed together into one person? And I'm thinking all the and, and I'm like. And I'm starting to, and I'm like, maybe I'll talk to one of these people. So I go to talk to one, and I, I can't, huh. they're not hearing me. It's, it's like uh, I'm a ghost or something like so that. So lucid but limited uh, control over the dream. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah, and then uh, I, I tried. I was like trying to tap them on the shoulder, and they, they would, they, their shoulder would move, but huh. it was like they wouldn't know. And so then I like tried to punch a person in the face to get their attention, and their face would knowing move, that but they it was just a, like a dream person. Yeah, huh. knowing it was a dream person, and then they, they just like their head moved, and they just like continued with the conversation huh. they were having with another person. I'm oh, like, I this is it. so weird. And then it. I woke up. Do you ever fly? Um, I kind of, I often, um, I'll be like water skiing, which is weird. Cause I don't want, I've water skied like three times in my life. I'm not even sure I've ever gotten up, but I'll be like water skiing and like going over a wake and I'll like get a little air. I'm like, Oh, look at me. I'll go over another wake. I'm like, Hey, and I'll like try to get a little more air. And then, and then there'll be one where I just like 
jump and I'm like hundreds huh. of feet in the air and then it's always this, like once I'm up I'm like yeah I'm really I'm really taking off and then I'm like oh this is <laughs> this is a bit much Can and you then once I get up there no once I oh. get up there I'm like oh no how am I going to this isn't going to end well and then I start uh, I start um you know coasting down and then I I brace for impact and I wake up on impact Wow, yeah, that that happens fairly regularly. Something like that. Sometimes it's just jumping. For me, it's a slow, heavy, arduous flapping of my arms, especially in uh, in situations of danger, approaching. You no, know, it could be vampires, zombies, you name it. And they're coming for my ankles, and I just get up, and then I can soar into the trees. Why does and everyone get great control? I, just that's amazing it. yeah sometimes you I lose control and it is nerve-wracking zombies oh, you don't get, i don't get any oh, monsters never I'll, once in my life have i gotten have a monster to, i have to give you uh, you should give me a monster a hit list <laughs> of which graphic novels to read or movies to watch <laughs> <laughs> that's great you can fly yeah huh. actually i love it so so um delving into the personal it's it's really intriguing especially when it's lucid, to explore, for example, a relative who's died. Mm-hmm. And you really miss that relative. And the few times I've dreamt about that, I knew in the dream, this is impossible. This is an impossibility, but I'm going to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to exploit this oppor- ephemeral opportunity I have and smell the person, touch the person, hear the person, converse with the person, and live in a way that I think is more real, more substantial than my wakeful memory mm-hmm. can allow. Mm-hmm. So I try to take advantage of that when I Absolutely. can. Absolutely. Do you find that someone that uh, passed away or you haven't seen in a very long, like, like say a decade or two, mm-hmm. um, and you dream them, have they aged in your dream oh, that's appropriately? Usually not, no. They have no. for me. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Isn't that weird? Oh, that's wild. Yeah. No, for me, it's all it's all zip, zip back to a specific, you know, age or time in the past. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, it's present day. And then oh. oftentimes, I'm like, this person's dead. When, when I, because I will become lucid. Yeah. That's, that's, like I said, suspended disbelief. Right. It goes away. And I'm like, oh no. And then I like wanna, but, uh, but sometimes they'll be like, what's wrong? Cause as I'm like realizing that this is a Whoa, dead person that I'm talking to. Wow. And I'm like, nothing. And, I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know how to break this to you, <laughs> <yeah>. but. <laughs> <laughs> in the uh, dream dead, bro <laughs> what <laughs> i know this is gonna seem crazy but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah it's bizarre yeah. it's it's I, i've had some that are i would say there's a unsettling kind of troubling quality to it not not in a negative i mean it's part of the rich tapestry of life that we get to have these experiences some of them not necessarily the way we would choose them to go down but um but yeah that's those those ones have stuck with me and there are ways in case your uh, listeners are interested in enhancing your dreams or even training to be a lucid dreamer 
And mm-hmm. you can find a lot of online sources and written materials on training to be a lucid dreamer, for example, and what benefits it might have. For some, it's more work than others. But also just trying to enhance the visual components of your dream. There are interesting ways of doing that. Mm. Wonderful. Um, well, so I guess my main question would be, and I wonder if there is a way to eventually infer this somehow. As as the field becomes more open to the idea that, say, an insect or whatever is, is experiencing what we are calling sleep, um, I mean, are, are bees dreaming of, like, queens with detached boobs and, like, <laughs> huge... Huge pots of of of, uh, of sugar and like other and and just like the 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 biggest most gorgeous flowers they've ever seen and uh, uh, these like really dramatized versions of, Can I of their hand own. You kind my of... little book called Apis Somnia. The idea behind this is an extension of my science that I collaboratively conducted in Germany, in which we did. Some visualizations within uh, the brain. Let, let me cut you off for a second. Yeah, I'm sorry, because I want my listeners, where can listeners find, I don't want to forget to tell my listeners where, <laughs> where they can go to find some of your, your work and your... Oh, well, they your, wouldn't, wouldn't really be able to find this one unless they oh, found never me. Mind. But <laughs> it's an uh, addition of uh, 50. But, um, okay, well. but uh, I've got some art on my website that needs to be updated. Um. Well, uh, okay. Well, now I feel awful for cutting you. Why, 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 don't, why don't you continue with what you were talking? Oh, so this is this is an extension of the work that I was doing in Constance, Germany, with Christoph Kleinidem and Lisa Rath and uh, Giovanni Galizia, where we were doing some calcium imaging in the antenna lobe of a honeybee's brain. Mm-hmm. So basically, you can look at the the first processing center in the brain Mm -hmm. for olfaction, for odor. And this is right connected to the antenna. And so is our calcium ions passing from this cell to that cell in these regions of interest? You can find out putting fluorescent dyes in the brain. So what I wanted to do was see if a bee that's sleeping would still process odors. And we came up with a handful of bees that seem to show that they can, and they do. So that would be maybe the first beginnings, inklings of an indication that if you're processing odors during sleep, does that go to higher order processing centers? Do you incorporate it in a narrative? And in that little art book, taking images from the calcium imagery, uh, I extend the idea that a bee is thinking about flying to a flower collecting food, coming back to the nest. Basically, as the brain is um, processing the odor, flash, it sees the flower, smells the flower, processes food, handles the food from the flower. So there is no answer to that right now, but titillating hints. So for example, every once in a long while, I'll see a bee that shows every indication of being asleep and yet everts the tongue-like mouth parts. So is she dreaming about extending those mouth parts into the curl of a flower? Who knows? I think there are tractable ways to begin to further address ideas of what could constitute a dream for an insect. 
But uh, those days, exciting days, are ahead of us. Yeah. I, I mean, we'll eventually kind of be mm. able to DVR the mind a little bit as, as we're trying to, for people that are paralyzed and can't talk, you show them a picture of uh, a ball or something like that, see what region uh, lights up, and then next time around you have them concentrate on a ball and it that's picks right. up. And actually, that's how lucid dreaming works in a, in a nutshell. I mean, the, in the case of science fact following science fiction you've got plenty of science fiction and the first the really interesting beginnings of science fact that show how we're dreaming what we're seeing in terms of humans and some rodents really interesting studies navigating this this dark fictive realm hmm. and i i would be I would be surprised if there wasn't dramatization going on in the brains of es- everything especially if it means, if it benefits an organism, if during the sleep-like state, there's a state, it doesn't even have to share a common ancestry with our dreamlike state. It's most definitely doesn't in the case of the dreaming. But even if it's a convergence, a functional convergence, you could imagine that training or practicing during sleep could help mm-hmm. in outcomes. Yeah. So... In my lab, we're about to conduct studies involving Y-maze learning in bees, and we're going to associate that with sleep and sleep loss. Hmm. So, uh, I again, I had a, I had an episode recently where I was getting a tour of um of a, a insect collection, and um, this wonderful fun thing happened that right at the end of the tour we noticed uh, um, a roach on the ground that had, like the, the work was coming uh, <laughs> coming to them. It was funny because they're right. like, we, we, we need to call maintenance. They need to spray for bugs <laughs> to keep bugs out of our bug thing. And, but, but what I learned from that was she went to go and, and, and pick it up. Um, and again, listeners, this, this may be an episode that was already released, or it might be one in the future. So sorry that time and space are different for y- you and I. Um, but uh, she went to pick it up, and she is like, well, we'll see if it's dead or not. And I would have, I didn't know, I thought that if a, if an insect looked dead, that meant it was dead. I had I had no idea that they can seem dead for a very long time. You can even pick them up and pin them down and everything else, and then and stick them in a freezer, pull them back out, they thaw out and come right back to life. I've had a couple of tragic anecdotes associated with this, and yeah. in, in one case, I was a a wee undergrad in entomology. And I was making a collection. I said, oh, this is a beautiful three-horned black little fungus beetle on a bracket fungus. And I thought it had died, pulled it from the freezer, stuck a pin in it. And you can guess the horrible end. Yeah. Wriggling on the pin. That was so horrifying. So there is a standard practice for a number of species where the default is to drop and feign death. And just like an opossum and some snakes, hognosed snake, for example, you can pretend you're dead really effectively because a lot of predators will avoid something that's static, sessile, and potentially dead. 
And a lot of insects, for example, if you grab it, a a seasoned professional entomologist might grab certain insects different ways. So, for example, I'll have my hand below an insect if I want to grab it on a leaf because many of them will just drop down to the leaf litter. And so if I'm ready waiting with palm. And so then I can watch the insect play dead in my hand for a while. And that really strikes people's interest. Hmm. Why don't we? Why don't things sleep like that? Sleep like they're dead as a natural defense. Just sleep upside down, and and uh, you know if why you know the the um, the cliche like chalk outline <laughs> of the person murdered, and their and their hand, one hands up over their head, the other ones, and and they're in this like uh, jigsaw puzzle shape or something. Uh, why why don't we sleep like that to fool potential predators? I don't know. I've I've had. Uh, at least one roommate that really was convincing kind of a death pose at night so we can't we do shift uh over time over the night our positions Uh but you're right it's typically not a death posture why because uh far along we go into rigor mortis and our bodies do take certain positions now in the case of an insect you take a cockroach it's not going to curl up with its legs together on its back because that's a difficult position to get out of, first off. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, In the case of some beetles, like a stag beetle, it can die in that position. So you definitely don't want to sleep in that position. Mm. But why physiologically it'd be different, be an interesting thing to explore. Mm. Um, well, we're not getting to cultural entomology ah! today. We're going to have to do it another time. <laughs> Part three. You're, you're just... <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, we will. Um, but I have. Let's do this. Let's yeah. plug. Uh, let's plug the the charity of your choice that you want to plug. If you remember from last time, it was Cerci Society. Yeah. So this is the International Conservation for Invertebrates organization, and I found that to be uh, really relevant as one of a myriad of of worthwhile co- uh, sources to invest your funds for the betterment of our planet, Cersei Society looks at those 97 plus percent of animal species that are often dismissed or ignored that need our help and our protection. Mm. That's a very worthy cause. Uh, people can find out more going to the herewearepodcast.com website also. Uh, oh, here's a, here's a fun thing. I, I started um, a partnership with Libro.fm recently, which is an audiobook company. And just like all your other audiobook companies out there, like say Audible or whatever, which are doing a great job providing uh, reasonably priced services for people. It's the same price, same catalog, but what Libro.fm does is it allows you to pick your local independent bookstore and you're actually downloading it from oh, them. So, and they split the costs and or the profits rather and uh and so you're supporting your local indie bookstore so this is the first time i've ever done this let's have a let's have a sponsored um book recommendation um for uh from libro.fm i didn't prep you for this i hope uh you can think of a book that was influential on you maybe early on in life that you enjoyed and would recommend others Wow, I'd love to. Re- Can I recommend a few books? Yeah, as many as you like. Wow. Okay, so I'm really getting into Giulio Tononi's Phi, P H I. Marvelous book that traverses 
The Dreams of Galileo, a mix of nonfiction fiction that travels through time and the mind. And it really thinks about consciousness in interesting ways. Mm. Phi by Giulio Tononi, who is a sleep biologist and consciousness researcher at UW-Madison. Ah, yeah. All right, yeah. potential future guests. And actually, I already mentioned uh, Kevin Ashton's How to Fly a Horse, A Secret History of Creation, Invention, and Discovery. It's a really intriguing book. Hmm. Um, but in terms of relevance to insects, a big one I'd recommend would be Thomas Eisner's For Love of Insects. Hmm. Beautiful book. And then anything written by Tom Seeley at Cornell University. His latest book, uh, the Life of Bees is a zinger, but Honeybee Democracy is also brilliant. I could go on. Nice. <laughs> uh, that, that's, that's, uh, that's enough homework for, right. for today, probably. Let's finish our conversation about, uh, about sleep and, uh, and insects. You have, a, a, you have some other um, nuggets you want to get. I'm, I'm not in a, any kind of a hurry or anything like that, so we have time, but I imagine... Um, if I just uh, let you, we would talk about sleep and insects for the, <laughs> True. For the next two hours. You name the time, the duration, <laughs> and the answer would be yes. So I've got a couple of quotes for you that yeah. I love. So my first ventures into insect sleep started with this beautiful, large, yellow paper wasp that's located in Arizona, or at least that's where I studied it, Polistes flavus. And as I was studying as a master's student, the sleep of this somewhat social paper wasp, I was reading this book by Kevin O'Neill called Solitary Wasps, and a quote that was inspiration for me to continue in this uh, laborious master's. Most people, biologists included, would probably consider the study of wasp sleeping to be pretty uncompelling. So that was the harbinger for more sleep research <laughs> but let's go let's go back in time and we can think about for example pliny the elder 79 ad and in the back of his book on natural history in the world the only place i could see find his mention of insects and sleep or insects and dreaming was insects do sleep insects do breathe and sleep but okay all right We'll run with that. Now, fast forward, you know, a couple thousand years almost, and you've got Rao and Rao in 1916, and at the beginning of their paper called The Sleep of Insects, an Ecological Study, they wrote, an object in motion always attracts the attention of children, young and old, a butterfly flitting from blossom to blossom, a locust jumping before one in the dusty road, a bee rummaging in a flower, all arouse one's interest. But naturalists, like children, cease to pay attention to insects when the latter cease their activity. Thus, the interesting problem of when, where, and how insects sleep has been all but neglected. Now, I might have read that same quote months ago when we met last time, but it's worth repeating. It's, uh, I don't think that you did. I think oh, I, would have, I would have remembered that. Great. That, that's an impactful quote, and it does, it, you know, it makes me feel like a fool. Here, <laughs> here I've been just, uh, just tantalized by these, like, birds flying about and uh, like a child. Ooh, things moving. I'm going to look at the moving thing. Completely 
ignoring Ugh. the static Cecil. We and, have all and, been missing out on such a large portion of life. That's right. I mean, skip uh, coma, torpor, death. Go to sleep. That's yeah. the stationary behavior you should focus on. Yeah. Intriguing. So uh, of, of the stationary behaviors. That's right. That's the one. That's the good one. Now, hibernation, estivation, these are exciting, too, and really interesting sure, ways. Sure, no long. one's saying anything no. negative about <laughs> hibernation here. <laughs> and when I started looking at insect sleep, I thought, all right, I'm really interested in insects. I'm in, really interested in sleep and dreaming. I'm also interested in social behavior and social dynamics. Mm-hmm. So could it be that you can look at sleep in a social light or even dreaming in a social light. And it brings up all manner of fascinating, quirky, weird, eccentric research ventures. And one I just learned about very recently is the idea of co-lucid dreaming. The idea that you can lucid dream with another human. What? Yeah, yeah. So You got to be spooning at least, though, <laughs> no, right? No, you could be... Uh, thousands of miles displaced from lucid dreamer a and communicate what are you talking Ready? about and i'm yeah. not talking about quantum mechanics here it just requires uh, some technology <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so the idea is say you are sleeping yeah and you want to make lucid dreaming a scientific venture Stephen LeBarish has studied this for years and one thing he did was he'd institute an indicator now, it's, you can see the eyes flitting about during narrative dreaming, during REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. But what's really rare is to see the eyes sweep across from left to right and repeatedly. So maybe you could show someone on the outside that you're not only sleeping or dreaming, but you're at a particular state, a predefined location or time of a predefined dream mm. by indicating with your eyes. Now, your distal digits, like your fingers or maybe your toes, can twitch a little bit. So you can indicate that way, maybe. But they did it with the eyes, and I think it might be easier with the eyes. Yeah, when, when you see detached boobs, look <laughs> left and right. The running theme of the show. <laughs> so, you have this- and, and, then, and then you see, and then if someone else does it, at the same time in another place, then they're also seeing the detached boobs. Well, the idea is that if you can, <laughs> if you can indicate, so for example, I have just flown through the ceiling of this room uh-huh. and I'm about to fly over a university campus, for example. I'm going to indicate that I'm about to fly through the ceiling, right? Boop, boop. Now, aside from indicating to the researchers where you are in the dream, the researchers then can indicate to another lucid dreamer with, say, a red or a green light flashed in their room. Now, sometimes it might wake them. Sometimes it might be ignored. But every once in a while, they are stimulated enough that it's incorporated in their dream. Just as, for example, your alarm clock became a a church bell or a song in your dream, right? Oh, and you stay asleep? In this way... You might be incorporating that signal, that cue of a red or green light into your dream. Now, if you're a good lucid dreamer, then you've already pre-planned what point in the dream you're in, and you can share that dream in a sense. 
with mm. Lucid Dreamer A. That's the idea. Oh. So that was pretty new to me. That's interesting. As an Oneronaut. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a psychonaut. I have a documentary called Psychonautics, using psychedelics to explore the inner oh. workings of the mind. And I, I don't think it's all that terribly different. And, yeah. and now that I'm uh, uh, kind of taking a break for the time being from uh, psychedelic experiences as I'm still integrating past ones um, and have no real use for, I'm, I'm such a perfect model citizen at the moment. I don't, I don't know how much better uh, <laughs> I could get, but, um, but, as, uh, but, but uh, lucid dream, uh, dreaming is something that definitely would, would uh, scratch that itch for me a, a little bit of exploring kind of these um, inner perceptions that, you know, are, are seemingly really bizarre and so different than our, our waking life. But, but Now, in, in that case, am I wrong in that some of those psychoactives you can experience with others in a way that might be like traversing a dream together? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it happens quite a bit. I don't quite understand what's going on with it if it's how, uh, you know, we're, we're all pretty... Um, uh, subject to um, influence and um, and the idea of like telepathy or whatever seems real fun and people people seem to have a real penchant for uh, uh, confirming any kind of evidence of having some sort of superpower or special trait <laughs> and so I'm always a little bit um, wary but I think that you know people people might always be picking up on subtle movements smells olfactory stuff that we aren't consciously aware of and and the way that gets represented is in this um uh you know kind of similar seeming um in internal world i i think that i think that you and i both have an idea of what like a perfect female or something like that would look like and, and we have that embodied somewhere in our mind that we're using as a template to measure um females or, or friends or whatever against and i think that or the in, perfect beetle or the perfect beetle yeah. we might have the idea of the, what the perfect yeah, beetle is and it might Mantis. and it might look very similar in our inner worlds it might look like a completely different thing than an, an external beetle much like the um what is it the cortical homunculus uh, uh, the the little little man that's in the right, brain, sitting in the seat of your brain uh, uh, um it, you know has these has these um the body parts the ratio of of the neural activity for for body part is is not does not represent the Right. The physical um, body. Look at a naked mole rat in that sense. And it'll have a huge nose yeah. with huge whiskers and massive front claws. Yeah. yeah. And, so, uh, and so then, like, once you, say, do a psychedelic and your consciousness gets shifted into this internal mind's eye or whatever, um, I, I think if you, if you run into, like, your own inner representation of your own body... Oh. It would look like an alien or something uh, to to you, and it's really just you that you're seeing. And that idea of the social interactions having unknown consequences on that activity mm -hmm. are interesting to me, because if you had a solo journey versus a social journey, uh, you might not even be cognizant of the effects 
in a social journey mm-hmm. on what could what you could otherwise experience. So it's well documented that, for example, smells of different sorts can affect the emotional states of your dreams. Mm-hmm. Is it garlic? Is it a rose? Is it a carcass with putrescence that will affect the emotional states of your dreams? Similarly, you can incorporate sounds. Um, so, question of what subtleties in your environment are impacting your sleep state and dream state. We could go in many directions with this, including like sleep hygiene. What does it mean to get the best sleep you can? And there, there's a lot written on the topic. And Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, is a good example of a book that attempts to address the, the better ways of approaching a sleep state. Hmm. You know, when you mentioned, uh, one, it, it, does anyone know or has anyone asked the question if if um, if social um, uh, uh, species sleep more or less than, uh, than species that aren't as social? I imagine it's been asked before. Oh, this is the question that my colleagues and I are asking in Panama and Israel with two species of fruit-eating bats right now. So we want to look at roosting behavior and consider whether or not, are you roosting alone? Are you roosting in a clump? Are you in the center or on the periphery of that clump or cluster? And how does that affect your sleep? So you can imagine different causal associations, like I'm the, you know, alpha male or female, depending on the situation, I'm going to go to the center and I'm going to sleep well anyway, or is it the fact that you are in the center that you're sleeping well because the periphery is more dangerous? Mm. Or are is the bustling activity, as I'm finding in a honeybee colony, the bustling activity toward the epicenter on the brood comb too much that it's hard to get sleep unless you're inside a cell. So I found that with just to take one species as an example. And honeybees, great example because they're eusocial, truly social. They're more social than humans are. And the one measure of greater sociality is their reproductive division of labor. In this case, you just have one queen and you know, a handful of drones that are ephemeral in the colony. Otherwise, you've got all these workers, none of which typically reproduce themselves. So uh, in that case, you've got what's called age polyethism. As they age, they change tasks. That's interesting. Atypical. So you've got some ants, some wasps, some bees that do that, where it's not that this with huge jaws is the soldier ant, and this with smaller jaws is the forager, etc. No, in honeybees, eh, the adults all look pretty much the same, unless you have individual paint marks again, right? Mm-hmm. And you know that this Geschlüpfterbiene, this newly emerged. Thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) That newly emerged or it closed from itself. (laughs) The first couple of days, she's going to be a cell cleaner, typically. And after that, she might spend a week as a nurse bee. And after that, a food store. And after that, the risky terminal cast as forager, going off to collect whatever it may be, pollen or nectar. Now, in that case, that succession, how are they sleeping? Where are they sleeping? These are the first couple of questions I asked when I was doing my uh, PhD. And it was really fascinating marking bees from eclosion or when they become adults all the way through their foraging days as to when they changed 
casts, what they were doing as they changed, where they'd sleep, how they'd sleep. And a lot of cast-dependent sleep behaviors came to light as a result. Mm. So, for example, you're a young bee. You're a hive bee. It's called a cell cleaner or a nurse bee. You're going to sleep right there, not only right in the center where the brood comb is, but you're going to sleep inside cells. When you're a cell cleaner, you sleep inserted deep inside a honeycomb cell. When you're a nurse bee, almost every time inside a cell in the brood comb. And then a food storer, you sleep more outside cells and, and maybe a little bit away from the brood comb. Foragers, the eldest risk takers, they always sleep outside of cells and way on the periphery of the comb, typically. Mm-hmm. They'll shift positions, but it's usually always on the edge of the comb. Now, that's really interesting. You've got cast-dependent sleep behaviors in terms of locality. And then you've got duration differences. You sleep more if you consider the sleep inside a cell when you're really young as an adult, and the rest is all the same. Hmm. I think that if I were a forager, I would I would go out and about. I kind of sneak off somewhere out of sight. I'd take a little snooze out there somewhere, and then I'd come back, and everyone's like, "Well, they must have been working really hard. Bing! They've been gone all day." Except they'd smell you, and they wouldn't detect nectar pollen that'd be a tricky one to pull off as a cheater in a colony and not to say you don't have cheaters you do in all colonies you'll have some cheating going on Uh to some extent let's do a cost-benefit analysis of that behavior you've chosen to engage in so you go off schnooze in a flower right or on the side of a building or something like that on a tree branch and then after an hour or two you've gotten your z's in you come back to your colony. Beezies. Beezies. That's right. But what's happened here? Okay. One, you've gotten, being away from that bustling colony, you've gotten maybe uninterrupted sleep. That's great because if you've got fractured sleep or fragmented sleep, that can be as damaging as total sleep deprivation sometimes if it's extreme. So, no fragmentation, you got consolidated continuous sleep somewhere, fantastic. Except you probably didn't because of environmental factors that might rouse you, but also it's a death zone out there. There's a reason why you're in a hollow tree with thousands of stinging sisters, right? Mm -hmm. So you're subject to potential predation or parasitism out there. So there are risks. Sleep, death. Mm -hmm. Which do you choose? Sleep, of course. God, you got me again. (laughs) I guess I'm going to head back in the hive and pull my weight. No, that's not to say it doesn't happen. And I see in especially solitary bees and Walter Kaiser did study published in 1995 where he looked at a few species of solitary ground nesting bees, males in particular, in Arizona, where they would go and clamp their mandibles on vegetation at dusk and stick perpendicular orthogonal to that vegetation, just stick way out with their mandibles clamped against that vegetation, and over the course of the night, gradually droop down. Now, they're sleeping out there. There's no colony, but, you know, that happens. In some social, truly social organisms, you will have the occasional, ah, got, I'm in a flower, sleep overnight in the flower, something mm. like that. So it does happen. Hmm. I don't know how common it is, though. Hmm. 
Oh, all right. So I like to consider what rippling effects are is sleep having or other complex behaviors in a social um, family, in a colony like this. And by looking through glass or in other ways at other species, you can make discoveries. And one lesson I'd, I'd hope to pass along to your listeners is that every one of you can be a scientist. Every one of you can be what's called fashionably a citizen scientist if you like. And you can do so through programs or projects that are well organized, or you can run your own backyard experiments. Easy to do. Just posing a hypothesis, testing that hypothesis, being critical, uh, skeptical, and engaging in a testing and replication. You can make discoveries, discoveries that I don't have time to make, other scientists don't have time to make. Or we're so focused with our tunnel vision on certain questions that we lose sight of other possibilities. So everyone can advance science collectively and individually. That is a wonderful message. And uh, so sorry, all you slackers out there. <laughs> you, you no longer have an excuse for not taking Conducting part. Conducting science. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Barrett Klein, for joining me for part two. Thank you. And weaseling your way into a part three. Woo! Very clever. Thank you. Uh, we, we, we will do that um, sometime when I'm when I'm back in town. That will be a terrific subject to get into. And look forward to having you on Stand Up Science tomorrow as well. And uh, thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. And good luck in your new adventures as scientists. And to Ophelia. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, back at the Cincinnati Zoo, talking about what's our favorite subject, everybody? Artificial insemination. You bet it is. But Shane, why have you never had an episode about artificial insemination before? If it's the best subject on the show. Well, I didn't know it was until I recorded this episode. You'll have to tune in next week to hear all about it and i'll post some pictures on instagram we're gonna have a lot of fun guys it's gonna be great i need to do more zoo episodes more aquarium aquarium episodes what a delightful time check that out guys there's still some spots available <coughs> still have a cult first off guys why have I not ever had a single person on here who researches colds? What? I go through colleges all... I've never seen a cold researcher. Why is there no one... Why, it should be a whole department at every university. Have we just completely thrown up our hands? There's immunologists. I haven't seen anyone studying the cold we're studying all sorts of people are working on flu things we got all these diseases we're worried about cold we just throw up our oh we just have colds we just get colds what how is that possible what is the reasoning how come there's at least not a person explaining colds there should be someone that i should easily be able to look up and be like hey what's up with colds 
And then maybe they'd explain like, well, here's the reason why we're never going to cure it and why they're actually good for us in some way because it prevents this and that. And so you don't want to mess with the cold. That's why we don't try to cure it. Then I would know, but you need somebody. You need someone working on talking about colds. All right. Maybe a future episode. So, um, guys, Myco Meditations coming up in January. There are still spots left. And you might be thinking, well, what the heck? You know, I'll just wait. He's done these in, in the past. Now's not the best time. I don't know if I have $4,000 for a thing. I know, yeah, it is a lot of money. Vacations are a lot of money. It is the best money you'll ever spend on a vacation. It's an all-inclusive, uh, it's an all-inclusive package. It is a bargain. You do not want to go to some resort in Jamaica and just take your chances on some touristy trap. Uh, most of it's awful. Uh, and But Michael Meditations is in Treasure Beach. It's just the reason why I keep going back. It's paradise. It's just these beautiful, empty beaches with hardly anyone out there. There's like little shacks to get some food at, have a drink, whatever. You get three doses of psilocybin on the the uh the retreat over seven days i might be doing them with you next time been dabbling back into psychedelics lately been going real good for me been in a great headspace it's been helping quite a bit helping me get out of the funk that i was in um uh, recently so been in incredibly important and and uh so you're like oh i'll just wait till the next one well I'm not sure there's going to be a next one, and if there is, it's definitely not going to be next year. It may not be the year after that. Even this one, we decided to do because, well, the documentary came out, Eric's in it from Myco Meditations. We figured maybe that would make for an easier uh, sell, and there's there hasn't been as many um, spots filling as we hoped. We weren't even, every time I've gone, I, I've wanted it to be all here we are listeners. And we've always had to open it up to the public. And so, and I don't want to do that. And so I've, I, I like the idea of doing it just for, um, here we are listeners. And, um, and I've, I keep on trying and then every time it doesn't work and then I'm like, well, maybe I'll try again. Now the documentary's out. There's more people read Michael Pollan's book or whatever. And this time we put a bunch of feelers out and a bunch of people were like, yes, if you put a retreat up, we're definitely interested in, and then we're like, well, what about January? Will you be interested then? And then people were like, absolutely. Perfect time. And then, so we put it online, and then all of those people that said they were interested um, didn't have the budget for it, or wasn't good timing for them, or whatever. And so it went from, we thought it was uh, going to be already at least half full uh, from day one, to having to slowly fill it, and it is slowly filling in, and, and definitely get your get your spots soon, because they, they will run out. But this is definitely going to be the last one. Um, for a while because uh, which is disappointing I actually think I mean it's I guess you can't know how cool it is without 
um, going there and how life-changing it's been for a lot of people. You can go and watch testimonials on the Myco Meditations um, site. Again, you can go to shanemoss.com to find all the uh, information for the psilocybin retreat that I'll be doing January 18th through January 25th. But the thing is, is I'm like I'm making the same amount of money, um, if not less money, for doing a retreat than I would be any other time. Probably less money for doing it um, than just doing stand-up science shows. It's not. I'm not doing it to make money. I need money to pay my bills, but I'm not making it to make some killing or anything. I'm just doing it because it's the most fantastic thing that I've ever been a part of. And, but, um, you know, that being said, the amount of advertising that I'm doing for it, you know, I'm handing out flyers at stand-up science shows, I'm talking about it on this podcast, and I just can't be babbling about a mushroom retreat on every episode of the Here We Are podcast. I'm not interested in doing that. Um, I there There is stigma involved still which is unfortunate and i'm i'm trying to um i'm you know i I like to work toward eliminating but there's still i don't think it's one i don't want to be known as like the psychedelic guy we barely even talk about psychedelics on on this podcast outside of when i'm advertising this retreat and i don't want to put my my listeners are in an uncomfortable position where they feel like they can't share something because I'm advertising this at the end. I don't want to, my, my guests all proud they're on a podcast and, and uh, giving it to their kids and then worrying that, oh my gosh, there's this, there's this retreat with these, with this, uh, um, illegal drug. It's legal in Jamaica, by the way. Um, and so those are, those are all the things I have to consider and the, and they have been worth it for me to do something that I very, very much believe in, but I, um, I also had, had the hopes that it was going to be sold out tonight and I wouldn't need to, or not tonight, sold out already and I wouldn't need to, um, keep on plugging it this many times and as often on, on the podcast. So uh we're it's my fault i guess i don't have enough listeners or there's just not enough people interested in this yet the timing's not right doing cutting edge things that are a little ahead of the curve uh, requires taking patience and so that's fine but that's that's all to let you know that it's probably going to be a couple years before i try doing a retreat again um, because honestly rather than doing all of this and using a bunch of my airtime I would rather just go there by myself and not have any I'd rather just pay myself and not have responsibilities um, and and not um, not have to worry about filling a space and and advertising on my podcast all of the time uh, it's it's a fantastic um, once in a lifetime kind of opportunity. I, I do know there's a there's a couple people maybe returning that have been to, from past retreats. So um, it it's fantastic and just letting you know you I mean you are missing out. I I send a lot of you know I 
do the best I can to form partnerships like this so I don't have to sell as many dumb ads for a bunch of crap that you don't need. And unfortunately, that's the crap that like people buy. And so that's like what helps pay the bills at the Here We Are podcast. And I wish it was more things like this and and partnerships with my Libro.fm offer code Here We Are to get audiobooks that support your local independent bookstore and the great courses plus.com slash Here We Are to get a free month of, of courses and those partnerships that I worked hard to create and really believe in. I wish you guys believed in them a little more too, if I'm being perfectly honest. But there's, but there's a, a zillion podcasts out there. Everyone's biding for your attention and your money and telling you get, to get this and that. But I do, I do wish that I just had these partnerships that I absolutely, wholeheartedly believe in, and they did well enough for me that I didn't have to advertise um, all of the other garbage that breaks up my show in the middle of it and is annoying and and uh, but that's just what needs to happen to pay the bills unfortunately um, so so yeah that's the thing when I when I tell you I've, I've formed a partnership with someone and I'm doing it in these intros and outros and stuff it means that I have went out of my way to form these partnerships it's something that i really 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 believe in when you hear ad adverts uh, breaking up the middle of this podcast eh, you know i'm getting paid to do that and it's what i need to do maybe i believe in it maybe i just need to pay the bills but these partnerships it makes me bummed out that more people aren't as excited about this stuff as i am that's fine there's individual differences don't complain to your fans about your fans, Shane. I'm not complaining about you guys. I'm just career frustrations. I have a pretty good life, I guess, but it would sure would help if um, if things if when I went way out of my way to get to line up cool things, um, people were like, "Oh, there's a cool thing. I like cool things," and they wanted to do cool things as. Well, I just wish there's more people that liked cool things. I guess we all have different ideas of what cool things are, but mine are the right ones. <laughs> um, all right, that's a whole spiel. Um, sorry if it was annoying. I, I but uh, also now you get to humorously listen to me second guessing myself as I often do. Um, thank you guys for listening. You are the best. I I do. Um, I do uh, love doing this podcast. I have just been in such a brutal um, depression lately, and I, I um, just everything. I've I've just been complaining about everything um, lately. I've just felt I've felt uh, um, fragile and uh, and ornery and whiny and I feel like I'm just starting to get out of that now so thanks for indulging me in uh, a little bit of catching you up to speed with what's been going on with me those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorites
Podcast Network.